The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 5 this morning. The word of the Lord. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 12 this morning. The Word of our God. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, if it does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It is said that the clothes make the man. In the case of the prophet Elijah, what a man he was. I mean, Elijah stood boldly against one of the most 
evil kings and one of the most wretched queens in all of Israel's history. And to call them the most wicked and the most wretched is to say an awful lot. Elijah also powerfully confronted the paganism and the crass indifference to the things of of God that had become pervasive throughout all the people of the land. Elijah was a man of God. Now we naturally think of Elijah heroically standing on Mount Carmel and confronting the prophets of Baal. You know, he calls for fire to fall from heaven, and the Lord answers by sending fire. Or we think of Elijah praying to the Lord that it would not rain in the land. And for three and a half years of drought and famine, there was not a drop of rain in all of Israel. And then Elijah prayed once again, and the Lord sent rain. It's all very dramatic. But what was Elijah's mission? What was Elijah hoping to accomplish or God seeking to accomplish through him? In one word, Elijah was seeking repentance. He was seeking that the people of God who had gone after other gods, who had become indifferent to the Lord their God, would be turned back to the Lord. He was calling them to repent. Turns out people don't always like to be called to repentance. And for this very reason, King Ahab called Elijah the troubler of Israel. But Elijah responded and told the king, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. See, in spite of the way the Ahabs of this world respond to being called to repentance, it is actually going your own selfish way against the ways the Lord has called us that is the path of destruction. And turning to the Lord to love him to walk in his ways is the path of life. What does this have to do with Elijah's clothing? Well, one day when Ahaziah was king, he had a terrible fall through the lattice of his house, his palace. He was very, very severely injured. And so he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. Think about that. The king of Israel was consulting pagan gods about his own future well-being. But the angel of the Lord appeared to Elijah the Tishbite and said, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So the messengers turn around, they go back, and the king's kind of startled because they come back a lot quicker than they should have. They haven't made it to Ekron yet. And they said to the king, there came a man to meet us, and he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, 
but you shall surely die. And the king said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And the king said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. See, Elijah's distinctive clothing marked him out. The king knew exactly who he was because he was wearing a coat of hair with a leather belt around his waist. So when Matthew tells us in verse 4 that John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and that his food was locusts and wild honey, uh, he's not just giving us a description of this unusual clothing that John happened to wear and frankly a rather sad diet most of us wouldn't want to have to live on. No, what he's doing is he's drawing the connection between Elijah and John the Baptist, a connection that every Jew in the first century would have recognized. This is the one the prophets spoke about when they promised that they were gonna, the Lord was going to send a messenger in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the fathers, to lead them to repentance, lest the Lord come and strike the land with a rod and bring judgment upon everyone. How great was John the Baptist? Beloved, think about how many prophets, other prophets, prophesied about. I'm going to guess he's the only one you can come up with. And both Isaiah and Malachi prophesy not simply about the coming of Jesus Christ, they prophesy about the coming of the messenger of the Lord, who is John the Baptist. That's pretty significant in the economy of God. Indeed, Jesus would later declare, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's Jesus' testimony about John. But what was John's mission? Although the circumstances were different, John's mission was actually fundamentally the same is that of Elijah. To call people to be turned back to God, that is to repent. So we're not surprised that the very first word we hear from John's lips is repent. And then he tells us why we ought to do that. John was calling people to repentance. Now repentance is not only necessary to become a Christian, it is absolutely vital to the Christian life. Therefore, it's important that we get the doctrine of repentance correct in our own thinking. It's going to make a real difference in terms of how we live. We can only do that, that is, get the doctrine of repentance right, if we remind ourselves of what the Lord is calling us to do, that is, how we ought to live in the first place. Right? What is God's intent for your life as a disciple? What is God's intent for your life as a person who's been redeemed and united with Jesus Christ? Well, we have been created and redeemed so that we would walk joyfully and faithfully with the Lord in our day-to-day lives. It's that walking with the Lord that is so central. It is what is called out to distinguish some of the greatest people of God that have ever lived. Enoch walked with the Lord. Abraham walked with the Lord. It's a call to be with God, to enjoy him, and to glorify him. And it is only by walking with the Lord that we can do those things. What I want you to hear in these words 
is that God's purpose for your life is relational. It's relational as it connects with him. Let me say this to you young people in particular. Um, You old people listen too because you need to hear this as well. But I've discovered that when you're younger, it's very easy to make this mistake because of how you hear the term repent. And it can sound like what God is saying is, you've been bad, now be good. And that's not it. What God is saying is, is you've been going your own way. And I want you to be turned back to me so that you will embrace me, your God, who loves you. And that you will walk with me all the days of your life. It is a relational term. God is calling you to not simply have a better moral life, but to trust Jesus. And to enjoy this relationship with God as you seek to please him. Well, what does it take for two people to walk together? Well, to state the obvious, they have to be walking in the same direction. That's at least one of the criteria. And see, our problem is, is before we are given new hearts by God, God is going that way, and I'm going this way, out of my own self-will. No one's going to tell me what to do. I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my own destiny. And then God arrests us with his grace. He changes our hearts. So we turn around and we embrace God. We find in him a faithful savior who puts away our sins and we delight in him so that we walk with him. That's what repentance is. It's about being turned back to God. Rasmus very helpfully gave us that translation when he had to correct the the wrong translation in the Vulgate which said, do penance. Beloved, John the Baptist and Jesus did not come saying, do penance. They came saying, be turned to me, says your God, that you would live with me and walk with me and glorify me all the days of your life and enjoy me forever. Now, it might be really nice if that was the end of the story. You know, um, I was an unbeliever. God led me by his grace to true repentance. And now from then on until the day I die, I walk with the Lord. Uh, If you've been a Christian for about 15, 20 minutes, you might still think that's true. But if you've been a Christian for more than a few weeks, you know that's not how it works. See, the problem is God has turned me to walk with him, and I get distracted. I get distracted by things in this world. I get distracted by my own sinful desires that remain in me. I am pressed by adversaries who don't like Christianity. Some of those adversaries are not just of this world. that include Satan and his demons. And so I get knocked off the path. You know, the Lord doesn't change where he's going. He keeps walking the same way. But I start moving away from him. And God graciously taps me on the shoulder, or sometimes he has to grab a hold of my heart with a profound amount of strength and turns me back to him. That is, repentance is not something you just do just once if you get into the Christian life. Repentance is the ongoing activity of Christians. We drift, God calls us back. We drift God calls us back, and we are called to respond to that, to keep short accounts with God and to turn as quickly as we can. This is why Martin Luther, in the very first of his 95 theses, said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers would be one of repentance. Beloved, there's always room in my life, and I don't have to be 
have prophetic insight to know that there's always room in your life for you and I to walk more closely with the Lord than we are right now. And to the degree that we're not walking closely with the Lord, the Lord is calling us, come back to me. Walk in my ways. I am a good God who is leading you in the paths of life. And so as the Puritans told us, we need to keep short accounts with God. You know, when your conscience is pricked that you're doing something wrong, don't go, yeah, I'll get around to repenting. No, no, right then. That's the time to repent. That's the time to be tender. And with Luther, we need to seek that ongoing repentance that should mark out all of our days as Christians. So let me ask you a pointed question. How closely are you walking with the Lord right now? Today. See, that's actually a better question to ask than to ask, how fully have I repented? If you're focusing on your repentance, you can actually turn that into moralism. I'm doing pretty good with my repentance. Or I could beat myself up. I'm not really repenting very well. And your focus is in the wrong place. The question is, how closely are you walking with the Lord right now? And to the degree that that question unveils the fact that there are areas in your life that you need to be turned to God, plead with him that by his grace you would be so turned, that you would walk with him and enjoy his company and glorify him in this present life. This is what Elijah was calling Israel to do. This is what John the Baptist was calling Israel to do as well. Nevertheless, although Elijah and John's ministries have a lot of overlap in their mission, their circumstances were indeed different. And the difference in their circumstances is of great importance to us. Although repentance is for all of life, there are occasions when repentance becomes all the more urgent. Let me give you an illustration of that. Um, Suppose there's a couple, right? And um, they're in love. They're going to get married. Suppose you're the husband. Well, the husband-to-be. That might be a little harder for those of you who are women, but I think you could follow this illustration without any difficulty. You're looking forward to that day when you're going to become husband and wife, and the very day before the wedding, you do something that deeply offends your wife and hurts your feelings. Now there's this, this pain between the two of you. It was your fault. She didn't do anything wrong. It was entirely your fault. Now let it be said that any day of the year, what you're supposed to do is turn from that. You're supposed to right then get right with your wife, to to repent to her, ask for forgiveness, to repent to the Lord and ask for forgiveness, and seek healing and restoration. That's the right thing to do any day of the week. But beloved, if tomorrow is your wedding day, there's a special urgency to doing that. I mean, we can't get married with this barrier between us. I have to do everything in my power to make it right so that our wedding day will be a day of joy for my future wife, right? not a day of pain. Well, that's a pale illustration, I grant you, of what John is saying. And I give you a whole list of pale illustrations because they don't quite match up. I mean, if you're in the military, you can think of how the base changes if the President of the United States is going to visit your unit. All of a sudden, the grass is perfectly mowed, all the broken things get repaired, things get painted, and this is just so a human being that has his breath in his nostrils is going to happen to 
pass by for a few moments and might get a glance of it. How much more should we prepare to meet the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to make his path straight? And the thing to remember is his paths that John is talking about are in our hearts. To make our hearts and our minds right with God because the King is coming. Remember that we're called to joyfully and faithfully walk with the King of Kings, seeking to please him by doing his will. And John is saying the king is coming. See, that's what it means to say the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. For the kingdom of God to be at hand, God is coming. The king of kings and lord of lords is crashing into history. There's an urgency. Now is the time to repent. If there was ever a time to walk as closely with God as possible, that time is now. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That is what John was preaching. And by the grace of God, vast numbers of people were swarming into the wilderness to hear this message, to embrace this message, and to be baptized by John. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now the Lord was doing such a great work through John the Baptist that vast multitudes of people were going out to hear his preaching and many of those chose to to submit to his baptism. People were wondering, in fact, because he was so impactful, whether or not John was the prophet whom Moses had spoken about, or even if John himself might be the Messiah. We'll come back to that at the end of the sermon. First, we ought to say something about John's baptism. What were people doing when they confessed their sins and were baptized by John? Just two big points. First, there were ceremonial cleansings in the Old Testament. Um, Many of them had to do with the priests being cleansed. But there were also ceremonial washings with water for when people had become ceremonially unclean to mark them out from being unclean to being cleansed again, right? to be in a clean state before God. But I don't think that's what John's baptism is connected to. Rather, a practice that arose during the intertestamental period from the time of Malachi to the time of the birth of Jesus to the time of John bursting on the scene where Gentile converts to Judaism would be baptized in order to fully become Jews. They get circumcised, they'd also get this outward ceremonial washing that marked the fact that they had gone from being unclean Gentiles to now being clean because they had become part of the people of God. What is so striking then about John's baptism is that Jewish people were being called to declare this very thing about their own sins, that they had become unclean through their sins, just like the Gentiles who were strangers to the covenant and alienated from the promises of God. By coming and receiving John's baptism, these people were confessing that they too were in need of the Lord's gracious washing in order for them to become clean, in order that they would be ready to meet the coming king. Second, 
it is critical for us, let me say that again, it is critical for us to see that John's baptism is a sign of God's grace. The, The baptism does point to the need for cleansing, but the whole point is God is giving the cleansing. Repentance does not lead in itself. It's not the basis for your forgiveness with God. I really repented good. God looked at my repentance and said, I'm fine. Rather, repentance is a means of God's grace where when we repent, God forgives us. And the baptismal waters are a sign not only of our need, but they are also a sign of what God is providing. They are a sign of both. But let me say this very clearly. They're not equally a sign of both. Uh, The fact that we need to be washed in baptism does point to our sin, right? But God's grace in Jesus Christ is greater than our sin. God, when he saves you, doesn't take filthy, vile sinners and turn us into, you know, somewhat dirty, but mostly respectable Christians. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, he washes you whiter than snow, right? So it's very important that we understand that the waters of baptism are, in fact, a sign of God's grace. Uh, the command to repent, if left all by itself, would be a miserable announcement. Right? It'd be saying, get better. Unless you walk closer with the Lord, you are in serious trouble. But repent and be baptized is a gospel announcement. It's proclaiming that God has grace that is sufficient to freely pardon everyone who turns to him in faith. Now, regrettably, even among the crowds that came out to see John, some of those coming out were seeking something other than the grace of God for their lives. Look at verses 7 through 10 with me. But when he, that's John, but when John saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, but does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now see, if we remember that the Gentiles were being baptized to be cleansed, that this this comment's going to make more sense. Don't say that you're a physical descendant of Abraham and therefore you don't need to be baptized, you don't need to repent. Right? God can even raise up from stones children of Abraham. You're putting your confidence in the wrong place. Now it is an extraordinary privilege to be born into a family with one or more believing parents. To be set apart from conception as being part of God's holy people. To be part of a church to whom God has entrusted his word and his sacraments and his means of grace. It's an extraordinary privilege. But privilege is not possession. Beloved, each of us must take that privilege and look forward and by faith embrace the promises that come to us in God's word. Embrace the promises that come to us in his sacraments which means to embrace the promises that come to us in Jesus Christ himself. Indeed, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, but does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. See, put plainly, when the king comes, he's bringing a crisis. 
right? He's not just bringing cotton candy for everyone. When the king of kings comes into this world, he is bringing a crisis. If you do not get right with him now, when he comes, he is going to cut you down and throw you into the fire. That's what John is telling us. Let's back up just a bit. Let's consider what these Pharisees and Sadducees were doing and how this serves as a profound warning to us in our own lives today. Look back at verse 7 with me. Verse 7. What were the Pharisees and the Sadducees doing? They were showing up. That's what they were doing. They were there. Uh, Some of them came out. They wanted to question John. We see that in the other Gospels. They were there observing. They were really curious about this phenomenon. And undoubtedly, some of them were even going through and asking to be baptized. That seems pretty clear. What they weren't doing was repenting. They were not bringing the fruit of genuine repentance. They were going through some religious activities and curiosity, but they were saying, you know, I'm pretty good people. These fellow Pharisees and Sadducees of mine, they're pretty good people too. They don't need to be cleansed like those filthy, you know, low life that are going out there being baptized by John. They might have even been glad that those horrible sinners had a means of grace that they didn't need. I'm reminded of a bumper sticker, a really crass bumper sticker that I saw years ago in New Jersey. Uh, it's a response to uh, Jesus' teaching in John chapter 3. The bumper sticker read, born right the first time. You get that? It's a direct contradiction of Jesus saying that unless you're born again, you cannot even enter the kingdom of God. It's a slap at Christianity. I was born right the first time. The beloved Jesus says that unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven. Apart from God's grace in changing your heart, you can't even look at heaven and put your faith in Jesus Christ. When we repent, we are in turn to embrace the Lord, to joyfully and faithfully to walk with him, and to seek his pleasure by doing what he calls us to do. These hypocrites were just going through the motions. Maybe they thought it would be a little bit of cosmic fire insurance, just in case John was kind of right. But they weren't bringing forth the fruit that is in keeping with repentance. As our Lord himself will later teach, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Or think back to our catechism definition, which is really helpful. Our catechism definition of repentance says this, Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin Turn from it unto God, with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So please notice that repentance normally does involve real grief, real sorrow over our sins. But sorrow over your sin by itself is not repentance. 
Let me say that again. Sorrow over your sin by itself is not repentance. True repentance involves turning from our sin unto God with, with a desire that by his grace we'll now walk in newness of life. Quite simply, if you are not walking with the Lord after whatever you happen to say or after whatever religious activity you went through, you have not repented. Repentance involves turning to God himself to receive his mercy in Jesus Christ and to walk with him. Beloved, please do not play games with words here. God's truth really is that straightforward. Nor will it do us any good to hang plastic fruit on a plant that is not bearing any fruit of its own. Now, you know, that plastic fruit might fool a casual passerby who doesn't pay a lot of attention, but it will not fool Almighty God. According to the Word of God, the alternative to bearing fruit fitting with repentance is to be cut down and thrown into unquenchable fire. That's not the words of Jonathan Edwards. That's the words of the living God. And so John's hard words to the religious hypocrites are actually words of love. He is calling them to genuinely be turned to the Lord before it is too late. Yet the true repentance they need will require them to humble themselves and to acknowledge that they are filthy and in need of being washed. Consider for a moment just the insanity of any of them presenting themselves for baptism while imagining that they are already right by themselves, apart from the grace of God regenerating them and apart from God's sanctifying work in their lives. Um, I have never washed my car because it was clean. Right? The very fact that I'm washing my car is a testimony that the car is filthy. And beloved, you do not come to baptism because you are intrinsically righteous and clean by yourself. You come to baptism because God has graciously chosen to wash you. It is his work and not our work that makes us clean. Yet as I say, please mark this well. While baptism means both that we need to be cleansed and that God washes us whiter than snow, it does not mean both equally. Right? God's grace does not just kind of make you better, get you most of the way there. Rather, our sin is swallowed up by his grace in complete victory. And he clothes us in Christ's own perfect righteousness. Uh, this is where the true fruit of works that are fitting with right repentance actually comes from. They are not steps that we're doing to climb up to God's grace. The fruit of repentance that God is calling us to are acts of gratitude for the amazing grace that God has already shown us in Jesus Christ. So John is calling the covenant people of God to repent, and he is making clear what true repentance is. Then in verses 11 and 12, he begins to tell us about the person and the work of the Messianic king that, of course, will consume the rest of his account of the gospel. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. I baptize you with water for repentance, 
But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Uh, Many people had thought that John the Baptist might be the prophet that Moses talked about. He might even be the Messiah. But John is making clear, the gap between me and Jesus is so big, you can't even count that high. The one coming after me is so much greater than I am, I'm not even fit to take the lowly servant's role of carrying his sandals for him. He is so much greater, and his ministry is so much more powerful. I'm baptizing you with water. That's a preparatory work to get you ready for the king. But when the king comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What does that mean? Well, we should ask the question, who's going to get baptized? And John says, you. That is, all of you. He's not saying that some of you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire and others are going to miss out. And he's not saying that some of you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, while others of you will be baptized with fire. The way this construction works, the Holy Spirit and the fire go together. The fiery Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who's revealing himself as a consuming fire. And every single person will receive that baptism at the last day. So what does fire do? Well, biblically, the point is simply this. The very same fire of the Holy Spirit that refines God's people and purifies us completely consumes those who walk contrary to God. It's the same act. If you're right with God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that this this fiery work of the Holy Spirit might hurt at times. But God is using it to make you better. God is using it to make you purer. God is using it to make you a more fit instrument in his kingdom. But if you are separated from God, alienated with him, clothed in the garments of your own works, this fire will consume you. Let me make this really personal this morning. Are you ready to be met by and judged by King Jesus? King is coming. John makes it clear he's making a division. The king is coming. Are you ready right now to be inspected and judged by the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Many people imagine that Jesus is just some sort of cream puff who in the day of judgment will say things like, oh, it's no big deal, right? You know, everyone makes some mistakes, a few sins here, there, no big deal. I love you just the way you are. But you realize that that idea runs 180 degrees opposite for the way that Jesus has revealed himself to us through history and in scripture. As John says in verse 11, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. This baptism is going to come upon everyone. It's going to come upon you and upon me. The coming messianic king brings about a crisis And he brings about a division. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor 
and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. Beloved, the chaff does not get gathered into the barn just because it spent a lot of time hanging around with the wheat. You understand that? You might be coming to church for a long time. But the chaff does not get into the barn because it's been hanging around with the wheat. God graciously allows the wheat and the tares, if I change the imagery just a little bit, to grow up together, lest we be overly scrupulous in pulling up the tares and tear up some of the young grains of wheat. But a day is coming when Christ will make a division, and the chaff, all the chaff, will be burned up with unquenchable fire. And this brings us full circle. Not to the unusual clothing of Elijah or the unusual clothing of John the Baptist. It brings us to what we're going to be wearing before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, both now and on that great day. Are you standing before a holy God clothed in the vile rags of your own supposed righteousness? It's a sobering question to ask. Are you standing before a holy God clothed in nothing but the vile rags of your own sin? Beloved, if so, you are like the chaff in this story. You are in the most desperate situation imaginable. I mean that quite literally. If that is you this morning, nothing is more urgent than that you turn from going your own wicked way to embrace Jesus Christ and to commit by his grace to walking as close as you can with him all the days of your life. Beloved, quite literally, nothing is more important in your life than this. And so I urge you to throw yourself upon Jesus with everything that is in you to seek his grace. And I tell you with complete confidence and certainty, his grace is sufficient for you The God whom you need to seek is the God who is amazing in his grace and he is the God of steadfast love. Now for most of you, by God's grace you are worshiping here this morning clothed in the radiant garments of Christ's own perfect righteousness. But do you hear what this text is calling us to? The only appropriate response to that degree of amazing grace is that we too would bring forth the fruit that is fitting with repentance. See, our, our life of good works that we're seeking in this world is not a, 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 something we're building a monument to ourselves so God will go, yeah, he did pretty good, she did pretty good. Rather, they're acts of gratitude in response to God's prior and overwhelming grace in our lives. The only appropriate response to that sort of grace is that we would seek to walk as closely with the Lord as we possibly can all the days of our lives. For what the Lord declared to the Jews in John's day, he is still declaring to each and every one of us, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. May God give each of us the grace to do that very thing. Amen.